0: This morning we're going to look at one verse of scripture, but I want to read it to you or ask you actually to read it with me in four different translations. So, uh, did we have all those uh, translations available so people can, okay. Uh, the verse of scripture is Proverbs 29, 18, and this is uh, one of those texts that you probably have heard before, you may have studied it or You may have heard a preacher preach on it before, I don't know, but uh, the idea behind the message today is that we need to have vision for the future of our church, and for the church to be able to successfully accomplish the purpose for which God put it here, we need to have some ideas, some plans, some thoughts about where God is telling us to go, and that's called vision, vision. Some years ago in the business world, the idea of vision caught on and books were written about vision. You can still find them in the bookstores. You can order them online. And uh, basically the idea is that anybody who leads a company, whether it's a small company or a major corporation, always has to share a vision of where that company needs to be. It's kind of like the idea that I introduced several weeks ago now about being here, but we need to go there. Well, the vision of where there is is an important piece of the process of a church moving forward. It's almost like when you have a student, whether it's a student in elementary or middle school or high school or a college student, they need to see that there's something out there at the end that means we have accomplished our goal. And usually in our public school system, as well as in the private schools, it's that graduation date. And we make a big deal of graduation because it means the students have accomplished a great deal. And some of you are thinking about your graduation. Maybe it's a high school graduation or maybe some of you are looking forward to high school graduation. Or it could be college or graduate school. But there's a goal there. There is a a process by which you are achieving a stated amount of work and you've reached that goal. And so this morning, I want to introduce this process to you a little bit about the church. So if you have a, have it on the screen for us, I want us to read all four of these uh, verses, well, the one verse in all four of the different translations. First in the King James, and then the Holman Christian Standard, then the New Living Translation, second edition, and then the Message, which is actually a paraphrase. So let's read it together. Will you join me in reading that? You got it for us, Dick? King James First. Okay, let's read it in unison together. Where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Now, that's really not very good. Some of y'all didn't read. Is everybody able to see the screen? Is, it, is there a problem with seeing the screen? Have You got in a bulletin? Okay, let's read it together. Where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Okay, now let's go to the next translation. It's the Holman Christian Standard. Let's do it. Without revelation, people run wild. But one who keeps the law will be happy. All right, now let's go to the New Living Translation, the second edition. Don't have that one? Okay, is it in your bulletin? Let's read it from the bulletin. I'm sorry, Dick, I didn't know it was in the bulletin. When people do not accept divine guidance, they run wild, but whoever obeys the law is joyful. Now let's go to the message. If people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves. But when they attend to what he reveals, they are most blessed. Now I wanted you to see the contrast and how this word vision is translated in these different scriptures. What that means is there's no exact equivalent in the original language to our language today. And so these various translations are attempts to communicate the idea. And so if you look at the Holman Christian standard, when it says, uh, where there's no vision, it says without revelation. So vision has to do with revelation, not just somebody's idea of what the church should do, But God reveals his vision to his people. And then notice in the New Living Translation, when people do not accept divine guidance, same idea, isn't it? God divinely guides through revelation. He gives vision. And then I love what the message writer says. If people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves. You ever feel like that sometimes? You know, maybe it's a little project at the house. You get started and, and you don't have everything you need and you're not sure exactly how to do what you're trying to do and you just stumble all around. <laughs> Isn't it much better when you have a direct line toward this is the goal, this is what we're trying to go for, this is how it works, let's go for it. And that's the power of vision. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you very much that you've allowed us another day to come to worship to be together as a church family, to share in your word, and Lord, our prayer is that you will speak to me, Lord, not just to me as the preacher, but to me individually and to all of us that we can say the same thing. Lord, speak to me today that I will hear your voice and know what you have for me and how you want this to work in my life and in our church. I ask you to do this and pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Now, the first thing I wanna do this morning is to help you understand the meaning of the word vision when I use it in the context that we're using it in today. Here's a definition, comes right out of a dictionary. It says that a vision is a mental image of the preferred vision for the future. That's what vision is all about. It's a mental image, something you can see that's not yet real, but it's of the future. Now, all of us operate on that basis on some level. Let's just say, for instance, when you were in high school, you thought to yourself, man, one of these days, I'm going to have a Corvette. Uh, Some of you probably thought that. I've thought that. And so in your mind was this vision that one day you're going to be driving down the road in a Corvette or maybe it's a, a convertible or maybe you had some other vehicle or some other thing in mind, but somewhere along the line, you had this strong desire in your heart and you're still thinking about it maybe. I haven't got my Corvette yet, but you know, it was, it was placed back there in junior high school, I think. And so that idea, that mental image is like a vision that some people work toward. Some people have a vision of retirement. Some students have a vision of graduating high school on time. Now, that's a pipe dream for some (laughs) because you do have to study and take tests and go to to classes to graduate students. I mean, that's just necessary. But the vision idea that, that God has put in people's minds is that here is what God has in mind, and in the Old Testament, one of the examples is God told Israel that there would be a Messiah. God told through the prophets that one day he's going to bring a deliverer, one who will set the captives free, one who will heal the brokenhearted, one who will give sight to the blind eyes. And so for centuries, people looked toward that because that was their vision. God had planted it in their hearts. Now, take a second and think about this. Park Baptist Church in the next five years. You hope to have a pastor by then, right? Yeah. So before then, right? Yeah. Uh, what do you think could happen? What would you like to see happen at Highland Park Baptist Church in 10 years? Or 15, or just take it out as long as you want to. What, what do you think the ultimate goal should be for Highland Park Baptist Church? And if you have some of those things in mind, that's your vision for our church. And it works that way in individual lives, it works that way in families, it works that way in many, many areas of life. And so when you think about your vision for our church, let me caution you. Some people have a very small vision. And what they envision for the church is we're going to continue today what we did last year and the year before that, and it's going to extend on out into the future. The church should never change. That is not vision That is a death nail, and that will kill a church. So vision is this mental image, but vision is not something that you dream up. It is a divine revelation. Vision for Christianity is revealed to the leaders of the church. Now, I'm not saying this to pat myself on the back as the pastor. I'm not saying this just to... the deacons on the back or the others who have leadership responsibilities in our church but vision does not come through a vote at a business meeting hear me real clearly vision is not something that is gathered by finding a majority who agree on a particular plan that's not vision that's a democratic process and we do some things in the church by a democratic process but essentially According to the New Testament examples, the church is not a democracy. There's no place in the New Testament. The only example we have that people could even point to as a potential of a democracy is that when the apostles met together over the widows who weren't getting sufficient food, they said to the church, you choose seven men of good report. That's Acts chapter 6. And I believe those seven men were the first deacons in the church. And the congregation had the responsibility of choosing those seven men. But could you imagine the apostles coming to the church and saying, Hey, guys, we need to write a budget and you guys need to vote on it and approve it. So when the budget is passed, we'll know how to spend the money. Could you imagine that? We do that. I'm not opposed to that. I'm not saying we need to change our process financially. That's how a preacher gets in trouble when he starts meddling with the money. And I don't want to do that. But the point is, vision is revealed through the leadership that God gives to the church. Now, if you read carefully what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4 about the gifts that God gives to churches, one of those gifts is pastor-teacher. In other words, I'm God's gift to you. (laughs) No. I don't want to say it that way. That's not very nice, is it? But if indeed, if indeed God sent me here, if indeed you believe God has led me to be here at this place in the history of this church, then you should expect God to reveal to me the direction and the leadership we need to take for this church. If a pastor comes to a church and he's only the person, who is hired to make sure the sheep get out of the ditches and at night they're all corralled in and that's the only thing you want the shepherd to do you got the wrong person you see so my job is not to shepherd all the decisions the church wants to make my job is to bring to the table the direction that God wants this church to go in that's the way vision operates in the church now Number three, if you're following in your sermon notes, divine revelation often requires a paradigm change. And somebody said, Yeah, we change our pair of dimes for four nickels. <laughs> no, that's not the meaning, is it? Now, paradigm may be a new word to some of you. It was to me when I first heard it. I thought, What? And that, then I began to realize the meaning. So I've, I've, I've got a definition of it, again, from a dictionary. Here's what a paradigm is a paradigm is a framework containing the basic assumptions, the ways of thinking, and the methodology that are commonly accepted by the members of a community. A framework of basic assumptions, ways of thinking, and methods of doing things, that's the framework we have that's called a paradigm. But when God brings revelation, the paradigm shifts. It has to. Think about Moses going to Egypt after he'd been 40 years in the desert. And God said, Moses, go down. I want you to lead my people to freedom. And you know what? Moses got a response from the people when he first went in and told the Jewish leaders that he was there to deliver them. They said, we don't believe you. I mean, we've been slaves all of our lives. We're going to be slaves till we die. Our kids are going to be slaves. Our grandkids are going to be slaves. And Moses said, no, no, God's got a plan. And he had to demonstrate the plan by throwing his staff on the ground, and it became a snake. And when he picked it up by the tail, that was impressive. You just don't pick up snakes by the tail, do you? Unless you're evil evil, or Awful or whatever his name is. And so how does this system of paradigm work? Let me tell you a true story as to how paradigms work. Back in 1968, the Swiss controlled watchmaking in the whole world they had 65 percent of the market share of watches throughout the whole world nobody could touch the swiss everybody thought if you have a watch made in switzerland you've got a fine timepiece well something also happened in 1968 and it was a swiss watchmaker who invented the watch that worked on the quartz crystal principle now, I don't know enough about it to explain how that works, but somehow they took a crystal of quartz, pass a small electric current through it, and it vibrates at a certain frequency so precisely that it can create a watch that is extremely reliable. The Swiss invented it, but to them it was just a novelty. And they carried it around and showed it to people, kind of teased about it, but at the annual watch show, international watch show, They demonstrated it, and the only people who were interested in this quartz watch were the Japanese. They bought the rights to make it, and within 10 years, the Japanese dominated the world's watch market because the Swiss were thinking, no, we don't make watches out of crystals of quartz. We make watches out of mainsprings and gears and parts. And there was a time when you could not... Afford a Swiss watch, but then there was a time when they could hardly give them away because everybody was moving to quartz. It was so much more precise and everybody went with it. Now, many of you today have on a timepiece that does not have a mainspring in it, it has a battery or it operates on sun power or light power. Paradigm change that took place in 1968. And so paradigms need to change. In the 1980s, we had a paradigm shift in terms of personal processing of information. How many of you have a computer at your house? How many of you do? Probably should ask who doesn't, and it would be very few people who don't have a computer. Why? We've had a paradigm shift. I remember in high school and college, I wrote papers on a typewriter. And, uh, and sometimes I wrote them by hand because, you know, you can stretch them out and make them longer if you write them by hand. It, it looks nicer, you know, if you've really big letters. But these days, can you find a typewriter? Do you have any typewriters at your house? I don't. Why is that? We've had what well, Judy does. We have a paradigm shift, right? And so what's happened is we have changed methodologies. We have changed assumptions. We have gone to a new process. The only place that doesn't seem to have happened is the church. And you see, there are a lot of people in this church, like there are in a lot of our churches, especially churches that have been around a while, like our church, who assume that church is going to go on just like it's always gone on in the past. And whatever churches make have been very slight and very gradual. And any time you try to make any kind of a slight change, people are going to, Oh, did you see that? How many of you noticed Tommy Barton taking up the offering today? <laughs> little change, isn't it? Yeah, it really rocked Bobby's boat when I said, let's ask Tommy to <laughs> take up the offering today. And, and how many of you have heard little comments about me not wearing a tie on Sundays? You don't have to raise a hand, but I know it's out there. So what's that all about? Paradigm change. Now, here's the change we want to make. The church should not be focusing on just making satisfied those people we already have, but the church should be focusing on bringing people into the kingdom who are not yet in the kingdom. Another way to put it, instead of being inward focused, we need to be outward focused. Can you imagine the Great Commission if it was inward focused? What if Jesus said, Stay in the church and bring people into the church. Don't go out into the world to make disciples, but just ask them to come to your services on Sunday, and if they get it, they get it. Is that what Jesus said? Jesus says, go, make disciples of all nations. He expected the church to be outwardly focused. In Acts 1-8, Jesus didn't say, you're to be witnesses of me inside the church. And if people want to get saved, they can come in the church, they can hear the gospel in the church, and they can get saved in the church. Don't go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the other. No, no, let all those people come to you. What's the focus of the New Testament? It's an outward focus. Now, I'm not saying we don't care about people in the church. The early church did. I'm saying that we do care about people in the church, but that doesn't focus our main energy doesn't focus the main efforts of our budget it doesn't focus the main efforts of our staff that happens that we take care of those within our church but our focus must be for those on the outside okay do like this if you you don't have to agree with me but just you got it right okay we got it number four if you're following there are seven statements about vision vision asks this question where is god working Where's God working? Anybody know the name Henry Blackaby? You ever hear of his study called Experiencing God? Boy, that's been a long time. When I was pastor at this church, we used that study. And there are two big questions that Henry Blackaby teaches us to ask. Where is God working in our church? Where is God working in our community? And the second question is, how can we join God in his work. So let's apply apply that for just a minute. Where's God working today in Hanahan? Where is he at work? I'd like to think he's doing some work in our church. I see some things happening in our church and I think it's this angel choir is just one example. I think the hoops ministry is another example. I think some of the programs that we put on like trying to have a special guest in to speak like at a Christmas banquet or uh, maybe at the amphitheater or, or here in our service. Some of those things, I think, are God's working. I mean, you remember uh, Sunday before Easter when we had uh, Regal, uh, Jamie Regal in, how uh, we had several people respond to the invitation to receive Christ? I mean, God does his work in his way in his time. Look at the churches that God is using. Not every church that draws a large crowd means that that church is a biblical church, but there are many churches who do not compromise the gospel, but they use some means of doing church that are not like what we do at church, and God is blessing and using that church. Does that mean we're supposed to be like those churches? Not necessarily. But we need to ask the question, God, how can we join you in what you're doing in our world to reach out to lost people? You see, that's the paradigm shift. And you know what some of the biggest questions we ask here every year is, "R, is, R?" One of them is, well, gosh, Sarah, you'll appreciate this. Where are you, Sarah? I, there you are. How can we get people to serve in all these different committees? <laughs> Where are we going to find enough volunteers to fill up this committee and this committee? And this? Is that an outwardly focused or an inwardly focused situation? That's inward, isn't it? Or sometimes when it comes down to finances, we have all this crunch and we say, you know, we're not reaching our budget goals and we know that every item in the budget needs to be funded and so we have gotta focus on getting enough money to fill out our budget. Is it outward or inward? Can be a little of both, can it? Because you know, part of our outward focus is we do give money to missions that goes around the world through the cooperative program. We do give money to the Charleston Baptist Association that does a lot of good work in this area. Uh, We've really turned a corner in the association. So the big question that I want you to see at this time is that God is asking us, expecting us, like Henry Blackaby taught us, ask the question, where is God at work? Where is God doing something? And don't imitate that, but just join him in what he's doing. Here's number five. Without a vision, a church runs in circles. That's what that message translation said, it says, if people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves. And what it means to run in circles is doing the same things over and over and expecting different results each time. I remember it almost as though it was last week or last month. I attended a training session for the Charleston Baptist Association back in 1993. We held this session up at Santee. We rented a big space in a hotel, and we had a big group of people from many churches around our association, and the leader of our retreat was Bill Hightower. I don't know if any of you remember Bill. He was our director of missions in Charleston, and uh, he had brought in a man from the national, uh, the North American Mission Board. He used to be known as the, as the Home Missions Board, and this man was helping lead, and there was also an observer there from the WMU, the National Office in Birmingham. And so we began a big discussion of what is it that's caused us to stop growing. And that time the churches generally were plateaued and we weren't growing very well. And I remember distinctly this one lady, and I, I don't say this with any animosity, she was a friend of mine, she's now with the Lord, and, and I cherish her friendship. She went to a church that's in our association, not, not one that I pastored. And she said, well, I'd like to say that I think the problem in our churches is that we no longer have training union. Training union. I don't know why this keeps cutting in and out, but it keeps your attention better, so uh, (laughs) I don't want to change it right now. But anyway, and she said, furthermore, what happened in training union was people would stand up and they would just read their parts instead of giving their parts and just telling out their part. And she sat down. And I thought to myself, this dear lady is not interested in the future. She wants to make sure that we go back to doing the things that we used to do. And when they stopped working, we quit doing it, but she wants to try to work them harder. Let me give you a statement by a famous philosopher If you find yourself riding a dead horse, stop beating it and get off. Did you ever ride a dead horse? No, that's not very wise, is it? But sometimes we keep trying to do the same things over and over again, and each time we do it, we expect different results. You know what that's a definition of, don't you? Insanity. Churches are notorious for that. We used to do it this way, preacher. Why don't we do it that way anymore? It stopped working. Somebody said to me many times, Pastor, why don't we have revivals anymore? And I would say something like, well, you know, the purpose of revivals is generally not revival, but evangelism. Yeah, we used to have people come to get saved. And I say, well, here's why we don't have revivals. Lost people don't attend anymore. Lost people don't attend anymore. Do you know in the Billy Graham Crusades, as time went forward, a smaller and smaller percentage of the people who came to the Crusades made decisions for Christ? Why is that? Lost people quit coming to crusades. They know what's going to happen. They don't want to be confronted with the gospel. Lost people don't want to come to the church. In fact, the last few revivals that I hosted as a pastor were so poorly attended by the church people. It wasn't the lost that didn't come. The church people didn't come. Why? Well, John had a softball game. Susie had soccer. Little Linda, she had to go to dance practice, and they have a recital coming up on the weekend. So we don't have revivals anymore. Now, I have preached at several revivals. In fact, I've probably preached at 50 or 60 revivals during my ministry. I used to do two and sometimes three a year. I'd go off and preach somewhere for a week, and we'd try to have revival. But you see, I don't get those invitations anymore because that horse died. We got off of it and stopped beating it to death. (laughs) We looked for other ways. Point made. Let's quit running in circles. Number six, church success is found in joining God in his work. You see, when we're in sync with God at work, we will see success. Now, what is success? It may not be numbers. Success is the satisfaction of knowing that you're doing what God told you to do. Let me give you a case in point of how this operates. There's a guy in the Old Testament who was not necessarily a a preacher, but God called him to preach. And I don't think he bothered too much about the preaching, but when God told him where to preach, he decided, I'm not going to do that. His name was Jonah. (laughs) you remember that story? God said, Jonah, I want you to go to preach in a city called Nineveh. And Jonah said, "Uh uh-uh, those people are ungodly. They're not worthy of me. I will not go there because instead of asking you to change their hearts, I would pray for their destruction. God said, Jonah, I want you to go preach to the city of Nineveh, and if they don't repent at your preaching, I'm going to destroy the city. So you go tell them what I'm going to do. He said, "Uh uh-uh, no way, God. You know the story. Jonah ran in the opposite direction. He got a ship going for Tarshish the opposite direction of Nineveh. Nineveh was basically north, and Tarshish was east. And so as the journey went forward, the storms came, and eventually the sailors realized, and Jonah confessed, I'm the one, I'm the reason everything's going south here. Throw me overboard, and they tried their best not to, but he finally said, and they finally got, okay, if you're the one, let's, let's get rid of you. Throw him overboard, belly of the whale, God spit him out. Now will you go to Nineveh? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And he did. And you know what happened in Nineveh? The people repented. And the greatest revival in the Old Testament was the revival that happened in the city of Nineveh when the people repented and God did not destroy the city. Find out where God is working. Listen to what God is saying. Go where God is sending and good things happen. But if we insist on doing things the way we've always done them, doing what we want to do by democratic vote only, we're doomed. Oh, the church here will last a while. I mean, I don't, I don't have any ideas to when it's going to die, but if it doesn't change, it it will. And you can look at a number of churches around Charleston, some of them you guys know about, like Charleston Heights. You ever ask why that church died? Windsor? Anybody remember Windsor Church? They finally merged with the church over on Ashley Phosphate, but it was dead, and on and on we could go. Here's number seven. The church which has no godly vision will perish. The church with no godly vision will perish. There are famous words, the last words of the church, the famous last words of a church are these, seven words, we never did it that way before. Never did it that way before, preacher. That means we can't do it if we never did it before. Why, could we, why would we do it now? Well, what you've been doing is not working. <laughs> what you did before is not working. we got to do something different. So what's the, what's the different thing? Joel Barker, a futurist that I've learned from, he said, we better pay attention to the future because we're going to live the rest of our lives there. That's pretty smart, isn't it? What kind of a change is I'm asking you to make? Here's what I'd like to see eventually for our church. That we would be the church where people know they can come as they are. I'm talking about physically, I'm talking about sociologically, I'm talking about spiritually. What would happen if people came into the service on Sunday morning or whenever we had services and they wore shorts and flip-flops and maybe a t-shirt, hopefully a t-shirt? <laughs> what would you do? He said, looks like you could dress up for church. So in other words, you don't want them to come unless they dress a certain way, right? What if they come in and they kind of smell like they've been out on a drinking binge last night, and they kind of stumble coming here. Buddy, you don't need to be here. Like this one family came into church, and they had a seat right in the back, and got there one Sunday morning, There's there was this guy laying in their pew. And they said, Buddy, you need to move. And he's like, I and that's no man, you've got to move. This is our pew. You know. So the husband said, I'm not going to put up with this. I'm going to go get one of the I'm going to get one of the deacons, see what's going on here. So the deacon came and punched the guy a little bit, seemed a little bit, and the guy said, The deacon said, Man, where are you from? He's balcony. You think about it. You'll get it. <laughs> what if? We were known as the church where you can come just as you are. If you're not a believer, you're welcome. If you're a person who doesn't dress to the nines or you don't have a suit or, of course, praise the Lord, I don't see a tie in here except Bobby. Well, I see Ray over there. We're going to have to take some scissors and cut that tie off him. Uh, No, it's okay. I'm I'm fine. If people want to wear suits and ties, that's wonderful. I'm not opposed to suits and ties. I'm just opposed to the idea that you have to. Right, opposed to the idea that we have a dress code that people have to obey. And so we cannot wait for everybody to get on board. If we do that, if we say, okay, we want everybody in the church to agree to this, we've got to get everybody on board with any new thing that we try, we will only move as fast as our slowest member. When churches make changes that are important changes, some people will decide, I don't want to go on that train, and they'll jump off. I hope it's none of you, and and maybe Highland Park will prove to be the exception, but don't expect it. Let's stand up together. We're going to pray. I'm letting you out early today, see? I do that so you'll like the sermon. (laughs) You believe that, don't you? Father, we are thankful to you for this church and what it's meant to all of us here in recent days as well as in many years in the past. And we pray that as we face what your plans are for this church for the future, we will become excited and we'll cooperate and serve faithfully however you lead us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now before you leave, I meant to say this before I prayed, but let me say this to you. I've been talking with the praise team and and brian and i've been talking and i've shared this what with our deacons as well but we're probably going to close this service down for the summer months okay so that means the 8:30 service will probably cease at the end of may and for june july and august we'll only have one worship service and then in the fall we'll we'll have a decision before the fall as to how we're going to proceed with that but Just keep that in mind, pray about that. If you have any questions or thoughts about it, please feel free to uh, talk to me. You can call me, email me, or come by sometime we can talk about it, okay? So thanks, I'll see you soon.